0: Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Oliker Jeff Mankoff, my co-host, is out today, but he was in for the conversation you're about to hear. Brian Taylor... Um, who is a professor of political science at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, has written a book called The Code of Putinism, which I recommend to you if you're interested in, well, in understanding how Russia works. And we were honored to host uh, Brian for a book launch uh, for this book uh, at CSIS, an event that also featured Stephen Hansen, who's the Vice Provost for International Affairs at William & Mary College. So, in addition to the book launch, we brought Brian into the studio, because we could not do that, to talk to him a little bit more about uh, Putin, about Russia, about how Russia works, and about the making of the book. So uh, listen in. Welcome to Russian Roulette, Brian.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: So you've written a book about uh, how Russia works and how uh, Putin runs Russia. Um, What made you decide that this book needed to be written at this time?
1: It was actually a a conversation with someone who was asking me about what book – is out there that sort of tries to succinctly describe the way the system works. And I gave this person you know, a list of things, mm-hmm. you know, Alion Ledineva's book about Sistema, the uh book, Mr. Putin, and some other things. And this person who sort of follows the literature was like, yeah, but that's not exactly what I'm talking about. And I said, okay, and she said, well, maybe you should write that book. And so I decided I would, give it a try. And that's what sort of started me on that route. So it came on a dare. Basically, (laughs) it came on a dare. Yes. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yes.
0: So why, I mean, why do you think um, something like this hadn't been
1: written before? Um, I think it's kind of perhaps a unique, space in terms of books so most of the books i read about russia are written by professional social scientists and which written are. In just, which i am yes card carrying professional social scientists they're written you know in a specific way for a certain type of audience and there's an expectation about what that type of book looks like and on the other hand a lot of the books you see out there in the market tend to be written by journalists who have a much better in some ways narrative style but maybe less conceptual than an academic work might be. So the goal was to try and find some sweet spot between those two where there's a conceptual level to it that gives someone a takeaway way of thinking about what's going on while also written in a way that not just academics but any interested educated reader should be able to follow and come away with the basic points.
0: Well, in my view, I think you succeeded very nicely. I mean, one of the things I really noticed reading the book was how easy it was to read, that it wasn't filled with jargon. It, it, It does have a theoretical construct of sorts that is being tested to an extent through the book, but you wouldn't know that if that wasn't what you were looking for, right? What it reads like is an argument for how Russia works and the role of Vladimir Putin in that. Um, and I think I think you have done a very nice job of making that accessible to people who don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. So yeah, and kudos. It, it also
2: comes in at around 200 pages and covers quite a bit of, of ground in terms of both recent Russian history, Russian domestic politics, Russian foreign policy. So I think you, you managed to bring together a lot in a fairly concise amount of space. Which is another reason that it's it's going to be accessible, I think, to people who aren't necessarily professional social scientists.
0: Yeah, and finally, as we continue to uh, to launch your book, I would say agree or disagree with the basic argument. You do a really nice job of laying out how policies have developed. and I would say, particularly in the domestic realm, but also in the foreign policy realm, and you have an argument for why it's been that way. But if somebody's just looking for, you know, a quick guide to what's happened when and what the role of the government was in it, I think this also will serve them nicely. So,
1: I can't Good work. help but agree with everything <laughs> that you have just said. But yeah, to, to Jeff's point about the length, that was in some ways a struggle for me because my first two books both ended up kind of on the long side, 350 pages or more. And so I consciously set out to try and write for about 150 pages. And of course, I didn't hit that. I ended up stretching it to 200. But I felt like if you went that much longer with this type of book, you're going to lose readers either along the way or before they even pick it up. So uh, thanks for the, the... the plaudits about that. I, I hope that someone looking for a relatively concise account of what's happened under Putin will consider this as one option.
2: So, you know, one of the complaints that you always hear from people in Washington is that they don't have enough time to read to really sort of process things in depth. And so, hopefully, one of the the ways that this book will be influential is because it is so accessible, you know, being read by some of those people. And I'm kind of curious what you think, because we are in Washington, if you were going to be an American official designing policy on the basis of the insights that you lay out in this book, how do you think that policy should develop? Well,
0: actually, can we go back one step before then mm. ask, what, what are the most mm. important insights of this book that a policymaker should keep in mind?
1: On the off chance that a policymaker has time to, to read this book, I think... His or her staff, anyway. Yes. Um, some of the key takeaways, I think, are that there is a relatively fixed... Um, pretty set way in which Putin and the people around him see and experience the world and in that sense breaking through to a very different kind of relationship I, I think is going to be difficult I think a second takeaway is that although Putin looks like he's on top of the world and in some sense we might even say that he is that If you look at the last 18 years, you can see problems developing that have been unattended to, especially at the domestic level, that could cause problems for him going forward. And so we should be aware of those possibilities. Even though I wouldn't necessarily predict them, I think we should understand still some of the vulnerabilities and problems in the polity and in the economic system.
0: And, you know, people have been... um... I sometimes joke that Russia is Schrodinger's country, right? It's somehow, it's both failing and succeeding immensely. It's neither as strong or as weak as it appears to be. It is both of these things and you don't know until you open the box, whether it's it's declining or resurging. Um, And you basically come down on declining, Mm -hmm. um, which is, or at least stagnant, right? Maybe not, you know, has declined, I think, kind of, but isn't getting any stronger. But it is getting more active, right? Um, and it could get a lot done and mm-hmm. do a lot of harm in that interim. So again, kind of from the standpoint of an American or perhaps a German or a French official trying to figure out, okay, what do I do to keep um, Russia's you know, flail on the way down uh, from hurting me, um, how, how do I adjust my policy to make myself safer and more secure in the, proce- in the process?
1: This debate about whether Russia's rising or declining, I think is one of the interesting debates among Russia watchers in D.C. I've sort of been following the debates and I can see sort of both sides of the argument. In the book, I put it in a fairly long Uh, historical perspective and by just economic and demographic indicators, the current Russian Federation is weaker than Russia's been in 300 years compared to the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. So in that sense, one of the big geopolitical stories of the last 40 years is the decline of Russia Mm -hmm. relative to what it was in the past. And the other one is probably the rise of China, right, if we're talking about two big geopolitical stories. Having said that, Obviously, Russia still has an extensive geography. It still has lots of nuclear weapons, still has a pretty strong military, even though it spends much less on it than the United States does. And it is the strongest actor in its region. So it it can still do a lot. I think what's surprising, perhaps, is how, at least to me, uh, how relatively successful they've been in Syria with the help of their Iranians. And how, one would say, quite successful, I suppose, they've been in the United States and Western Europe in terms of uh, what's happening uh, with the transatlantic relationship and those sorts of things. And no, I'm not saying that Putin got Trump elected or anything like that. But I do think that Russian activity in the United States, interference in the election, whatever expression you want to use, um, had a certain goal, which the intelligence community identified as both weakening uh, the American political system and uh, either undermining Hillary Clinton if she becomes president or getting Trump into the Oval Office. In some sense, that happened. You know, We can debate the degree to which it had to do with Russian uh, activities. But in that way, it is definitely making its influence felt in a way that just looking at the demographic or economic power doesn't show yeah, you. I would say, throw
2: out a couple of things. I mean, one is that a lot depends on how far back you want to pull the aperture. Because, yeah, if you're talking about comparison to the Soviet Union in the 1950s or the 1980s, Russia has declined quite a bit on almost every – maybe not on the economic side, but yeah, in, I mean, in most by most measures has declined in absolute terms from the amount of power that the Soviet Union had. On the would other you hand, rather live in Russia than Well, on than the other hand, now? though <laughs> – if the aperture is, you narrow it down a little bit, and your your frame of reference is not the 1970s or the 1980s, but it's the 1990s, and I think this is key to a lot of Putin's appeal, Russia has actually gained quite a bit from where it was in the 1990s, economically, demographically, in terms of military power and everything else.
0: But I also think this question of would you rather live in Russia then or now is important because... There isn't an uh, – different people have different answers to that mm. question, right? I would rather live in Russia now if I had yeah. to live in Russia. But that's
2: a separate question from power, though.
0: It's Well, it's a question about decline, and it's a question about um, – it is a question about power. Uh, if you can know. afford to be livable for your people – you've got a certain amount of room to do other things, yeah,
2: too. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd much rather live in Germany today than, say, you know, in the first half of the 20th century. But I would think Germany in the first half of the 20th century was immensely more powerful than modern Germany.
0: For certain mm-hmm. values of power. Mm-hmm.
2: Power in terms of the ability to get what you want from others. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: it's, no, I mean, I think it's an interesting question.
2: I think the other thing is, you know, measuring power in terms of the ability to get outcomes that you want, especially if you're talking about discrete events, is a little bit hard because there are different tools for applying power. And one of the things that I think Putin's Russia has done very well is operate in a kind of asymmetric way, taking advantage of the areas where it does have a comparative advantage and kind of moving the... Competition or confrontation with the West onto those areas and away from the areas where the West would have a comparative advantage, like in sort of you know aggregate military power or economic power, and focusing on these things like electoral interference, disinformation, you know, sowing or exacerbating fissures within society, um, and so sort of latent power and active power, I suppose. And Russia's done a good job of generating a lot of active power from having a limited capacity of latent power.
1: I think that speaks to one of the themes I explore in the foreign policy chapter, this notion of Russia punching above its weight. So if we're just looking at a couple of material indicators, you would not necessarily say that Russia is on the level with the United States or China or the EU taken as a collective But as you point out, they have ways of exerting influence and power in the system that doesn't necessarily depend on having the biggest economy or the largest population or some of those other sort of more traditional measures of power. The thing about it that's interesting to me, I think, is it suggests a notion that Russia has been incredibly successful in terms of devising its foreign policy strategy. And I wonder how much we can really conclude that this shows their brilliant minds in the Kremlin who really figured out how to, uh, you know, get its goals accomplished and weaken the West through these other means or whether there's a lot of trial and error and luck involved in some of these outcomes.
0: I think, yeah, I think that's these myths of competence, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, this belief that has become very prevalent in the West, that the Russians have known what they were doing all along, um, it's appealing because, it, you know, it imposes order uh, to, on chaos. On the other hand, I do think that to some extent things that the Russians were saying were true are beginning to be true, right? They've been saying that America's unipolar moment is ending for a very long time. Uh, it may finally be ending, mm-hmm. right? That doesn't mean that they were right all along. It just means, you know, if you keep saying, you know, this, right. even um, a stop clock yeah. is right twice a day. In, in the long run, we're all dead. <laughs> but it's... Um, I think they've been very lucky very recently. I think they've been a lot less lucky for a much longer time. I think they have been counting on a gradual American decline where they could take advantage of certain things. Mm -hmm. And I think they did not expect such a rapid uh, American, if not decline, then um, departure from uh, predictable behavior on the global scene. which has given them a lot more opportunities, which I honestly don't think they know quite what to do with. Right. Well, it also
2: cases. gives them a lot more responsibility because now the United mm-hmm. States isn't going to be cleaning up the messes.
0: All of which is leading to a question, which is what does the the code um, that you've uh, uh, you've presented tell us about how they're likely to manage all these opportunities and the problems that come with them?
1: I think that in some ways Russia now... And the current moment is like the dog that was chasing the car and caught yeah, the car and doesn't exactly. quite know what to do at this point, right? It's latching on with its jaws and holding on as hard as it can and going along for the ride. But it's still hard for them to steer because United States foreign and national security policy has become so unpredictable in some ways, which maybe creates opportunities, but it also creates risks for Putin and Russia that you wouldn't have had if... You weren't having this ferment Mm -hmm. inside the US national security system. So,
2: right, because that, you know, to use the car analogy, that car could reverse direction and back right (laughs) Right. over you.
0: Yeah, but I mean, a Russian official um, said in the meeting that everyone's coming to us now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of this we're, we're so popular, everybody's coming to us, everybody wants to know what we think, everybody wants us to weigh in on issues. It's something they've noticed that suddenly they yeah. they are important in a way they weren't before.
2: But part of the problem with that is now you actually have to do something. So it's all well and good to say, we want to be at the table. We want to be at the center of all of these regional dynamics in the Middle East or East Asia or whatever it is. But part of that means actually having to make decisions and take responsibility right. for some of these things. So you know I don't think the Russians wanted to be in the middle of a confrontation between Israel and Iran, but by taking on this set of relationships, now they're in the middle of that confrontation and they have to figure out what
0: to so, do about it. So the question is, just where does anti-Westernism, anti-Americanism, the desire to be a great state take you under these conditions? Do you grow a sense of responsibility you've never had before? Or do you flail?
1: Yeah, or do you I'd...
2: flail for a while and then eventually <laughs> figure it out?
1: I mean, there probably are some still kind of atrophied muscles from the Soviet period Within the Soviet or the Russian state, excuse me, that is comfortable with being in this role where people are asking them what their view is, how this should be managed and that sort of thing. But that was in a very different context than this 21st century context we're in now where, you know, there's a rising China, there's an uncertain U.S., there's an EU that didn't exist in the same way as it did before with its pros and cons. So it's a more complicated landscape than what they had in the bipolar system. And I think they also, because they've got this bigger sort of stake in the system and bigger role in the system, it leads them into to complicated issues like Jeff mentioned. So in Syria, it seems to me that Russia doesn't want to get stuck holding the bag for everything there. But there's also a feeling of many people in the West, well you know, it's the old sort of pottery barn thing. You, mm-hmm. you helped break it, then you own it. So, should we really, we meaning the West, really be, uh, you know, rushing in to provide economic support and that sort of thing, given that the outcome uh, is the one that the Russians helped create together with Assad in Iran, obviously?
0: You close your book with some predictions, uh, well, not really predictions, but some thoughts about how this could evolve. Do you think a more normal, which I'm putting in quotes, Russia would have a particularly different foreign policy than the one we're seeing develop uh, under late Putinism, or what we think maybe late Putinism. Yeah.
2: So I mean, that's a one way of asking a, a question that I was going to put you slightly differently, which is, you know, the book is called The Code of Putinism. And obviously, Putin is the, the central figure in all of this. But the code obviously exists beyond and outside of Putin. Uh, So if you take Putin out of the equation, uh, how does that change the code, and how does that change Russian behavior?
1: Big question. Uh, No clear answers, I don't think, but I do think in a post-Putin environment there's at least going to be an opportunity for maybe rebuilding that relationship in a way that is hard for me to see at the moment, given how far apart uh, the two sides are. Whether Russia would go in that direction, I think, remains very much open. I, I wouldn't necessarily predict that after Putin, it's all going to be, you know, happiness and roses and um, all sorts of great, com- you know, comedy among uh, the West and Russia. But I think still one of the most important things we've seen about Russia in the last thirty years, and this speaks to Olya's point about where would you rather live, is that as Dan Triesman put it, Russia has returned to the world. They're no longer trying to create a separate civilization Mm -hmm. the way the Soviet Union was. They're no longer invested in cultural, economic autarky. They're now engaged with the world in a way that they were before the revolution, but now it's in a more globalized world than it was. And so to the extent that at heart I'm sort of a a liberal in the internationalist sense. I think those types of opportunities in a more globalized system are going to help pull in Russia too. This assumes, of course, that the liberal order persists, which yeah. is a more open question how, than it's been are, for a while. I mean, right. we
0: have to define liberal order. Yes, we so do. Forth and and so I was going to
2: say, that there's also a dark side to that, which is when the Soviet Union was not part of that order right? That order could be defined around a set of values that were broadly shared among the countries that were members within it. Now, because it has become globalized and you have countries like Russia, like China, like others that are part of the same system or the same order, not only are they being affected by the order, but the order is being affected by them in ways that we may not be comfortable with.
1: That's right. I mean, the challenges that the liberal order ostensibly were meant to address after World War II, with rampant nationalism, protectionism, those sorts of things seem to be making a comeback. But now, in a context in which China is the number two economy in the world, you know, Russia is a very different type of player than it was at that time, and so, in some ways, should be integrated into that system, and the system should not just be built against it. And so, despite all the problems of what you know, I've her, I've termed here the liberal order. It's going to be hard to see how it goes forward as the world becomes more multipolar and maybe some of the actors aren't as invested in those sets of choices as the right. EU and the United States yeah. are.
0: Well, and if if it's no longer a U.S.-led order, um, what sort of role does the United States play in it and how much of a mess does that cause? And then what kind of space does that create for Russia? I mean, so from my perspective, I don't know— I mean, I think Russian foreign policy changes because the global order changes. I don't know exactly how much it changes based on who's in charge of Russia, but that's that's me. <laughs> well,
2: I think a lot can change based on who's in charge in any particular country. I mean, the the way that Russia defines its its interests and its role in the world is to some extent a function of the code of Putinism. Uh, if you take away Putin, you take away the code because you have a different set of uh, people running the country, then Russian international behavior could look rather different.
1: Certainly that's one of the the claims I try and make in the book. Now, having said that and arguing partially against myself, there's still going to be this impetus among the Russian foreign policy elite to to be a major player, to be considered one of the great powers, to have a seat at the system... That may mean not wanting other players to have a seat at the system, smaller states in Russia's neighborhood and that sort of thing. But I do think that as generational change takes place, as a different group of leaders eventually emerge, we don't know when, that there has to be a a reorientation because Russia is going to have a new set of challenges. Mm -hmm. It's still, despite the way it's been very successful in recent years is in a position where demographically, economically, it's not on the level of the Soviet Union and it's going to have a different role in the system than it did before. Right.
2: Yeah. Which is not to say necessarily that it's going to liberalize and that we're all going right. to go back to the 1990s or what we wanted the 1990s to turn into. Our
0: fantasy of what the 1990s yeah. were. <laughs>
2: it, it'll be different, but it may not be different in the way that we want it to be. Yeah. So, you know, reading through this book, Brian, it sounds like you talked to a whole lot of people uh, in Russia, sort of putting it together. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what were some of the more interesting conversations you had? What were some of the things you you learned from talking to people that really surprised you?
1: Sure. So for this book, it was very different than my first two books in terms of who I was trying to talk to. I was basically trying to survey the Commentariat class, if I can Mm -hmm. call it that, mainly in Moscow and St. Petersburg, about how they understand Putinism. You know, is it an ideology or not? What are the motivating forces in it? How does the system work? And I was talking to a lot of people who'd already written on this, so I knew what they basically thought, but I wanted to get some deeper insight into how they understood it. And I wanted to make sure to talk to not only the sort of standard set of liberal intellectuals who are more critically disposed towards Putin, but to talk to some people who are supporters of mm-hmm. him or some people who support one component of his you know, policies, but maybe not another. So I talked to you know, members of United Russia. I talked to some of the people from the more pro-Putin think tanks, as well as talking to some of the usual suspects among the more kind of critical uh, liberal elite. One of the things that struck me in the discussions with how much people, and this was certainly a product of the time of the interviews too, but how much people across the spectrum, not all of them, obviously, but how much people felt prior to Crimea, so some of the interviews were done like in 2012, 2013, they felt that it wasn't clear what the agenda was Mm -hmm. once Putin was coming back to the Kremlin. Where do things go from here? There was just a feeling of maybe not malaise, but a feeling of drift. Uh, and then after Crimea, there's a whole new set of energies mm-hmm. in the system and about what it means. And some people very supportive of it and other people more critical, but a feeling that something fundamental had shifted. And you could definitely see that going you know, mm-hmm. to Moscow and Petersburg. And you guys probably experienced it too, mm-hmm. that there was um, sort of a snapping to attention. It's like, oh, you know, something big happened that we have to sort of process and make sense of, and what's it going to mean for the system? One of the other set of interviews that I thought was interesting was I went out to Novosibirsk and I ended up talking to a, a lot of sort of civil society mm-hmm. people there who actually thought things were going okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
0: noticed that it's it's not you don't quite expect environmental activists to say oh and this turned out it's like wait <laughs> Yeah. did <laughs> I flip a page by accident <laughs> right
1: so you know they're talking about these grants that the Ministry mm-hmm. of Economic Development is providing for civil society and how at the local level you know regional governments are working with civil society so I do think it's important even though it's a book that's very much focused on you know, one person in the team around him. It's very much an elite-driven book. There's not so much in the book about society. But it is important for people to understand that the society keeps changing, uh, developing in ways, making their accommodations with the state and still pursuing their goals in a way that because we've gotten further away from what happened in the late Soviet and early post-Soviet period there's a bit more stability to the order. And that's one of the things Putin is obviously always given credit for is creating stability. And an overarching theme of the book is that there's still a lot of sort of uncertainty in the system, but maybe not in quite the way there was. So people are making plans and developing in ways that if we only talk about Putin, we might miss. And that's perhaps a flaw of the book, but I didn't want to make it any longer. I wanted to make it... uh, (laughs) focus very much at the elite level. But that's the part of the book, I guess, that's missing, the the story of the Russian society and how it continues to develop and adapt and change in ways that I think create challenges for the regime as well as opportunities for Russia as a whole.
2: How did people respond to this notion of there being a code?
0: Did you describe the code to them? I
1: did not describe the code to people. I wanted to leave it open to them. So, Did you
0: have the code in mind?
1: Um, I was fumbling towards it, I guess Mm -hmm. I would say, but I would start almost every interview with the question, what is Putinism? Mm -hmm. And I get all sorts of different answers. Uh, One thing that most people were very much clear on was Putinism is not an ideology, Mm -hmm. right? So certainly coming out of Marxism, Leninism Mm – there was a notion that this is nothing mm-hmm. like that. They're and not going to be
2: studying the collected works of Vladimir Vladimirovich in school.
1: Exactly. And in fact, one United Russia supporter said, Putin hates ideology. He can't stand ideology. And another uh, more critical person who would worked with Putin in St. Petersburg in the early 90s said, this is just you know, a fake kind of ism. There's nothing real behind it. So... Part of what ended up coming out of the discussions in my reading was a more complex set of notions about what Putinism might be than a very kind of rigid set Mm -hmm. kind of guides, as you put it, the collected works of Vladimir Vladimirovich. There isn't going to be that. But I still think there is a core there that came out in my discussions with a variety of people.
0: So what are you working on now, Brian?
1: Uh, Part of the time I'm working on being department chair, which uh, takes me away from I'm studying Russian I'm politics. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm very sorry about that too. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what's going to be next. I certainly don't have a big book in mind at the moment, but I do want to write some more things about sort of what's happening in Putin's fourth term. How is his role in the system potentially changing? How is decision making working? And I'm toying with the idea, and you two can tell me, about whether there's something to be said about things like defense and national security decision-making that we really haven't unpacked as well as we should. Because I recently wrote a paper for a conference that was kind of looking back at where Russian studies has gone, Mm. and the paper was called What Happened to Soviet Security Studies? And one of the things I argue in the paper is that that seems to be something that has fallen out of the academic side, Mm -hmm. at least of the enterprise. Although we have it in the work in D.C. that people like you two are doing, there isn't really a set of people in the academy who are studying sort of Soviet foreign and security policy the way we had during the Cold War. Or Sorry, Russian. Excuse me. There I go. That's what happened to Soviet security studies. It became Russian security studies. But I also think there are forces in the academy Mm -hmm. that make things like national security decision-making or arms control or, you know, Things that people used to study about procurement policy, mm-hmm. all that stuff is passe in but terms region- of academic IR. But
0: also regional studies is passe, right? So saying I'm going to, if I was if I was doing a dissertation project and I said I wanted to study Russian national security decision making, I'd be told that I had to compare it with at least two other countries, right? Mm-hmm. And, that's somehow, right. and somehow and yeah. somehow run a regression. And you, yeah, I was going to say <laughs>
2: you'd have to have like a lot of spreadsheets attached. But
0: to it. so I mean, I think that's also part of the problem, right? Yes, um, mm-hmm. my desire not to learn two other languages. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: yeah, would well, take no, they me wouldn't ask you it. to learn two other languages. You don't need to know them, you just need to run the regression. Yeah. Right.
1: I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about Russian studies today. There's certainly been an effort, and I would say a largely successful one, to sort of rejoin the family of comparative politics. Kremlinology is mm-hmm. no longer this exotic sort of side but- field where. It has its own literature and doesn't really engage with the rest of the literature. And now everyone is being trained that they're very much part of a larger dialogue and comparative politics, which which, is
0: good, which is great in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. It's
1: great in a lot of ways. But I also think if
2: Americanists would do that, I think we're being forced more and more in
1: that direction. (laughs) I think it actually would be nice
0: if Americanists would do that. (laughs) And
1: I think that might be happening in the current age. But I also think that means some questions that... Sovietologists yeah. were free to study or maybe mm-hmm. not so au courant it's, in the academy it's today. It's to
0: go deep. I also think that it is hard to study Russian defense decision-making because it does remain somewhat opaque in a different way from the way it was opaque in the Soviet period, right? Mm-hmm. Everything was opaque in the Soviet period, so guesswork was fine, and you, know, you could study photographs and... With defense decision-making, you have to read people's interviews and then see Mm. what policy choices were actually made and then make guesses as to who was influential on that basis. It's hard.
1: Yeah, Um, and there aren't necessarily the same frameworks that we Mm. had in the past for thinking about this. So I'm going to have to spend some time thinking about this. I just have a sense that one reason— there's this discourse about how oh the United States doesn't have any Russia experts anymore or what happened to Russia expertise. It's because a lot of the Russia expertise that we have in the academy, at least now, is about other topics. Mm -hmm. It's about economic issues. It's about public opinion polling. It's about things that are maybe not at the center of U.S. foreign and national security policy. And there are people in Washington who do the Russian security and military stuff, but very few people in the academy. And Maybe that's an inevitable consequence of the end of the Cold War. And so we need China security specialists more than we need Russia's security specialists. But I'd like to think that there's still a place in the academy for that. And since I have the, the freedom of tenure to pursue unfashionable topics, I may end up doing some more on that, going back to where I started in yeah. this field. I, I wouldn't I mean, I would encourage that, it. <laughs> I was going to say, it's interesting that
2: you find that to be the case at a place like Maxwell, which is a, a public policy school, in some ways should be an ideal place to do that kind of work.
1: Yeah, I think there's probably more sort of sympathy for that kind of work, certainly from, you know, the administration, the Maxwell School that wants to be both a social science school, which it is, but is also a public policy and public affairs school. So it is positioned to try and straddle that divide in a way that maybe other pure social science, political science departments might not be able to do.
0: Brian, thank you for joining us. This was a great conversation and uh, enjoyed reading your book and enjoyed talking to you about it.
1: Great. Thanks, yeah, very thanks much. for joining us.
0: That's it for our show today. We've got a link to Brian's bio in the show notes. We've got a link to The Code of Putinism, the book in the show notes. And we've got a link to the video, The Book Launch Discussion uh, here at CSIS. And I actually think if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll also enjoy listening to the discussion because it engages a little bit more with Brian's argument and you know these questions of how Russia does and doesn't work. Uh, and also, of course, brings in Stephen Hansen to that conversation. So if you enjoyed the last 30 or 40 minutes of our conversation with Brian I think you'll really enjoy that as well if you haven't already please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and please do leave us a rating and a review if you're not an iTunes user check out the podcast and subscribe via Google Play or on SoundCloud and of course if you do like the podcast please keep spreading the word tell other tell everyone to listen to the podcast it's a great podcast Um, While you're listening, questions may occur to you. Send them to us. Send your mailbag questions to rep at CSIS.org. Put the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. And we'll do another round of mailbag answers uh, pretty soon. Follow the program on Twitter. The program's at CSIS Russia. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Olyoliker, And follow Jeff on Twitter. He's at Dr. J. Mankov. And finally, big thanks, as always, to everybody who makes this podcast possible every two weeks. That includes our research associate and program manager, Cyrus Newlin, our interns, Kimberly Schuster and Leah Halikova, and the entire CSIS External Relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening.